0: Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at CandeoChurch.com. So, for my undergrad degree, I went to Moody Bible Institute, and I'll never forget my sophomore year in my Hebrews class. It was taught by Dr. Ronald Sauer. Ronald Sauer. Uh, His wife's name was Sue. He called her Sweet Sue. He was from Georgia, so he had this thick Georgia accent. Called her Sweet Sue, so he had sweet and sour. And he was a great professor. Uh, All the students loved him. I loved him. And I'll never forget the day where he walked into class, and he quietly sat down his briefcase, and then he turns to our class. He doesn't say anything. He just looks at us, and he just shakes his head. We were a little confused until he opened his briefcase, he pulled out a stack of papers, which was our exams from the week before. And I went, I went to school in an era where your exams were on paper, yes. And without saying a word, he walked around the room and passed them out, and it was, it was an act of grace that he laid them face down right, because our desks were kind of close to each other, and as I turned the paper over, there was my grade. Maybe you've been there. There it was, in no uncertain terms, the letter to end all letters. It was big, it was bold, it was red, it was circled with emphasis, F. Now for, for you nerds who don't know what that means, <laughs> if you see F on an exam, that F stands for failure, flop, fool. stands for a variety of things. But it's not good. There it was and my heart sunk, and the only consolation that I had in that moment was that as I looked around, I could tell that I wasn't the only one who had received that letter, and it explained the the disappointment. We loved Dr. Ronald Sauer. We loved him. It was like disappointing your dad, you know? he went on with the lecture, and I picked up my exam. I'll never forget, he, he finishes the lecture. I follow him back to his office. He didn't know I was following him. And I, in my mind, I'm like, I'm like, surely he made a mistake. Surely sophomore undergraduate Jake knows something or is smarter than Dr. Ronald Sauer. So I walk into his office. I think I scared him a little because he didn't know I was following him. I didn't say anything. I just handed him the paper, and he looked at it and just went... Oh, and and I was like, yeah, and we stood there in his office, just with our heads bowed, shaking our heads, like in this moment of silence. It was as though we were looking into the casket of my GPA together. You know, like, (laughs) and he wasn't wrong; he hadn't made a mistake. I had, in fact, failed the exam. Have you ever failed a test? Have you ever failed an examination? Maybe, maybe students, you did last week, or that's the, you know, the anxiety you're feeling as you're, uh, maybe it's midterms, it's close, right? Like you're preparing for a test, you have that anxiety that you will see the letter to end all letters on your exam. Or maybe you've already done that. Maybe for you, it wasn't a test, or maybe it was a paper or an assignment, or maybe it was a project at work. Maybe you're out of school, and you had a big presentation, you had a big thing you were working on. And then when the final assessment came, when you presented it to those who were in a position to review it, and they reviewed it, and the assessment came back, you had, in a sense, been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Have you ever failed a test? Well, what we're going to see this morning is that there is a test there is an assessment. There is a weighing in the balance that if each and every one of us fail to heed the warning in our text this morning, we too will be weighed in the balance and found wanting. We too, if we do not heed the warning and wisdom this morning, will fail this test. But unlike your college exam, unlike your project at work, there are no second chances. There are no retakes. And in fact, this is a test whose outcome is a matter of life and death. So what we're going to see this morning is what this test is, how to fail it, and then how to pass it. So if you have a Bible, you can open to Daniel chapter five. We're going to see what this test is, how to fail it, and how to pass it. Believe it or not, it's incredibly easy to fail tests. And for you middle schoolers uh, who are already at Daniel 5, that is not uh, King Bulbasaur, by the way. It's King Belshazzar. If you don't know what Bulbasaur is, ask a middle schooler. They'll know what's up. So Daniel 5, we're going to read the whole thing. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment... The fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale, and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself. Yeah, you read that right. Middle schoolers still paying attention? I think so. And his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face turned pale, and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have the spirit of the gods in you and that insight, intelligence and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read the inscription and give me its interpretation, you'll be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like, the, like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the most high God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you have been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Paris means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. So what's going on here? So we began chapter five with a new king. Last week, Stephen uh, walked us through Nebuchadnezzar's humbling in chapter four, but now we begin chapter five with a new king kind of like seemingly out of nowhere. And interestingly enough, for a long time, this king, Belshazzar, uh, was for some people the very reason why they would discount the entire Bible itself. Because for a long time, there was no record of a king of Babylon named Belshazzar. And so many people, when they would read Daniel 5, this was just one of those other, you know, another one of those times where the Bible is historically inaccurate, therefore we can't trust it, therefore faith in, you know, faith in anything in the New Testament is worthless, so ah, with Christianity, you can't trust the Bible anyway. Until late 19th century archaeological discoveries confirmed that there was a king of Babylon named Nabonidus, who had a son named Belshazzar. You see, Nabonidus was actually the successor following Nebuchadnezzar, but in a, when, as he was in a leave of absence for about 10 years, he appointed his son, Belshazzar, to sit, in, to sit on the throne in his stead while he was gone. So here's Belshazzar, son, son of Nabonidus, throwing an absolute rager. Like, like no party on the hill has compared to this party right here. And it wasn't as though, like, kings weren't known for having parties, but this party was somewhat peculiar. Because not only was the wine flowing, but there are thousands of people, including his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, which concubines are like his girlfriends, right? So he's got multiple wives, multiple girlfriends, they're all there, which... That's part of why it was peculiar, because it was less common to have your wives, put your wives and your girlfriends in the same room. Not generally a good idea, which is why they wouldn't often do it, but here he is doing it and the wine is flowing, which means that it seems as though Belshazzar is trying to set the stage for as much sensuality and pleasure as he could possibly get. Get everyone in the room and get them drunk. Now this is a crazy party But what makes this party even crazier is that while they partied, history tells us that while they partied, the Medes and the Persians were literally right outside the city gates. Right outside the walls, because about a week earlier, Cyrus just 50 miles away, had defeated the Babylonian army decisively. And the Medes and the Persians were on the march to the capital city to where this night, as they partied, they are standing right outside the doors. And so everyone in the city is probably in a bit of a frenzy. What will the Medes and Persians do? Will they take the city? Will they not take the city? If they take the city, will they totally destroy it? Will they siege it like we did Jerusalem? Or will they make us more like a vassal state? Will they kind of like take away some of our nobles but still exercise control over us? What will they do? And in the midst of this, Belshazzar and all of his friends party. Now why? Why party at a time like this? We don't exactly know. Could it be a case of like tremendous denial, right? Like defeat is imminent, you know? So might as well eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, maybe tonight, we will die. Or, is this like political posturing? Is this like his way of rallying the troops, you know, kind of like trying to portray strength? Like, yeah, I know they're right outside there, but look at how strong we are. You know, we can party while they're just right there. Maybe this is like the ultimate in like machismo behavior, like an overconfidence of strength and power. I mean, it's, it was known that, that the capital city of Babylon uh, had a storehouse of food that could sustain the city for over a year. And so even if they shut off all supplies going to the city, they could go, we got this storehouse of food. We're gonna be fine. We can wait them out for over a year. Whatever the reason for the party, whether it was denial, whether it was tremendous nihilism, or whether it was tremendous confidence, what we see from this party, whether it was pride or whether it was despair, in either case, what we see is that we humans are fairly predictable in the way that we deal with both pride and despair. Either one. The first thing that we see is that the first way that many of us deal with our pride or deal with despair is through pleasure and sensuality. Here he is, creating for himself what you could, what you could say like the most hedonistic of circumstances, and is this not where some of you turn and look for your significance? That either in your pride, you say, I deserve pleasure because I am something. Look at how great I am. Don't I deserve to be happy? With all that I've accomplished. I deserve pleasure. Or in your despair, Maybe you pursue pleasure because you say, without pleasure, how could I be anything? Without sex, I'm nothing. Without being wanted, why would I even want to live? So you turn to the romantic solution. Finding your satisfaction and your worth and your affirmation in the physical fulfillment of your sexual desires as if that were salvation itself. If you wondered if this is actually the orienting center of people, you need to look no further than than the top 10 pop songs today. The pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of sensuality. But in our pride or in our despair, we don't only look to pleasure, but some of you look to your own power. Some of you, or maybe it's not necessarily power, but maybe it's like to feel as though you're worth something, to feel as though you have value, you, you look to your own creativity. You look to your own uniqueness. Look at, look at verse three. Look what he does. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. The gold vessels that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem in chapter one, Belshazzar brings them in. Now, this wasn't uncommon for when a, when a nation would come in and conquer another nation, that they would take uh, vessels from the house, you know, from their temples of worship and bring them back uh, to Their nation, it was a way for the conquered nation to say, look how much more powerful we are, even more than your gods. Like these vessels would have been trophies of their superiority. They would have been trophies of their uniqueness among the nations. Look how different we are from everybody else. Because everyone else doesn't have these vessels, we do. Look how unique we are. Look how powerful we are. Look how special we are. Trophies of their uniqueness from other nations. And so what Belshazzar does is he says, empty the trophy cases. I don't wanna just see the vessels. I wanna drink from them. Like we are so much more superior. We are so much more powerful that these things that you used in worship, we use in beer pong or wine pong. The things that you regard as holy, they are our disposable cups. Aren't we special? Aren't we unique? Now you might say that's kind of weird. In one sense, sure. But don't you do the same thing? As some of you, in an attempt to find your value, in an attempt to find your to find your identity that in your pride or in your despair you look for ways that you are different from everyone else. You try to separate yourself from the herd to be unique, to be esoteric, to use words like esoteric, right? <laughs> You focus on what makes you different and better than other people. And then it's in being unique, it's in being special, it's in being creative, that that's what makes you different, that that's what makes you special, that that's what gives you meaning and where you find your substance. And so for some of you, maybe the way that you deal with your pride, maybe the way you express your pride or you deal with your despair is that you look to feel unique or different because it's only then that you feel valuable. You see, when Belshazzar and his drunk friends drank from the temple vessels, they were taking what was made to glorify God and they were using those things that were made to glorify God and they were using them to glorify themselves and to glorify their gods. Now, it may not be gold cups for us, but isn't it true that all that we have is both from the Lord, we saw that last week, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit, is both from the Lord, everything you have, everything you are is from the Lord, but not only that, it is for the Lord. Everything you have is from the Lord and is for the Lord. Uh, The Apostle Paul says it this way in Colossians 1, verse 16, he says, for everything was created by him, meaning Jesus, Everything in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Everything we are and everything we have is both from the Lord and is for the Lord, and yet how often do we take what we are and what we have and we toast to lesser things? Look at verse four. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're drinking out of gold, toasting gods made of gold. And yet, how often do we, in a, a traitorous cycle of cosmic treason, do we take our flesh and we toast to pleasure? That we take our possessions and we toast to comfort? that we take our abilities and we toast to our competence, that we take our hard work and we toast to our accomplishments. Isn't this the great home I have made? Isn't this the great family I have made? Isn't this the great career I have made? Isn't this the great project I have completed? Aren't these the great things I have done? When all the while, what is true is that everything you have and everything you are is a gift of grace from the Lord that he has given you for the purpose of glorifying his name and not yours. And it's in the middle of this toast... (laughs) that comes the handwriting on the wall. This is where we get that phrase, right? The handwriting on the wall. We say that generally when we talk about something that it's as sure as done, right? That this is most certainly coming, that the handwriting is on the wall. Maybe you didn't know. That's where, this is where that came from, Daniel chapter five. And so this hand comes out of nowhere. It writes four words. Two of them are repeated. See that in verse 26. And Belshazzar is stopped in his tracks. And as, you know, middle schoolers, you noticed... He loses control in a variety of ways, right? And in the face of confusion, he rolls in the experts of worldly wisdom. Isn't that what what always happens? Something chaotic happens and you turn on the TV, look at all these experts. Expert guests, expert witnesses, professors, writers, roll in the experts of worldly wisdom. But even they couldn't get it. Despite Belshazzar's promise of gifts, promise of prestige, uh, third highest place in the kingdom, again, that's the highest place he could offer. Remember, Nabonidus, his father, number one, Belshazzar, number two. So the highest position he could offer is number three. But even in the face of this, the worldly experts of worldly wisdom have nothing for him. So the queen most likely the queen mother, not probably not one of his wives, but like his mother or grandmother, comes in and reminds him of Daniel. So he brings Daniel in. He offers Daniel the same gifts that he offers the experts of worldly wisdom. And Daniel, notice, is a little saltier with Belshazzar than he is with Nebuchadnezzar. Whereas with Nebuchadnezzar, he's going, may this not be true of you. May this be true of your enemies. With Belshazzar, he's like, dude, keep your stuff. because it seems as though Daniel is seeing between the superficial pride to the divine reality that Belshazzar has nothing to offer Daniel that he actually needs. Keep your stuff. And then what he does is he recounts to Belshazzar Nebuchadnezzar's story that we saw last week. And then he says this, probably the saddest verse in this whole chapter the saddest verse, verse 22. He recounts this whole story. But you, his successor, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. What Daniel told Belshazzar wasn't new. It wasn't novel. It wasn't something he hadn't heard before. He's saying, you knew. Belshazzar, you knew the story. You knew the pride of your grandfather. You knew how your grandfather went crazy and lost everything because his heart was exalted against the God of heaven and he refused. He he was arrogant before God and you knew, you knew that it was only when he acknowledged that the most high God was ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them, it's only when he acknowledged that that his kingdom was restored. You can't say you didn't know Belshazzar, you knew. You knew. This is one of the perks of being the youngest child. I'm the youngest child in my family. Any younger children out here, you know this to be true. This is one of our perks, is that we get to see all of our older siblings do the stuff and get the consequences, right? And we can go, not doing that. At least if we're smart, we do that. We see those who have gone before us, and if we are wise... We will see what they do and either follow accordingly because it's successful or we will avoid calamity because we know. You knew, Belshazzar. And here's the thing. Here was the danger of coming to church this morning is that the same will be said of every single one of us sitting here today. if you didn't know before, that refusing to acknowledge God as the most high God, that refusing to do that will lead to your destruction. If you didn't know before, you know now. The fact that you're sitting in this room, the fact that you're reading these words with me, the fact that you're hearing my voice say this means that from this point forward, you can't say you didn't know. You knew Belshazzar. You knew all this, but instead, verse 23, but instead, you have exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from this house were brought to you. And as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God. Who holds your life breath in his hand, and who controls the whole course of your life. See, last week Stephen gave a definition of pride. And that definition is that pride is not seeing that everything you are and everything you have is a gift of grace from God. That's what pride is. Pride is not seeing that everything you are, that's verse, that's verse 23. You have not glorified the God of heaven who holds your life breath in his hand. Everything you are and who controls the whole course of your life. Everything you have. Pride is refusing to see that everything you are and everything you have is a gift of grace from God. Everything, the possessions you own, the job you have, the abilities you have, your kids, your intellect, your opportunities, everything. Now you might say, Jake, I worked really hard to get where I am. I went to school. I got my master's. I am Dr. So-and-so. I worked really hard. I showed up. I took responsibility. I was responsible. But you didn't control the family you were born into. You didn't control the place you were born. You didn't control the period of time you were born into. I recently heard the question, would you rather be a Rockefeller in the 1920s or a middle-class American today? Because Rockefeller in the 1920s, you have more money than anybody, but you don't have the penicillin that you need to save your dying son. You didn't control the period of time you were born in. You didn't control your family. You didn't control the number of children That you have, if you have any children at all, it's not as though that you could control that miraculous spark of life happening at conception in the womb. You didn't control that. You didn't control your genetics. You didn't control your physical ability. You didn't control your looks. As hard as you try, you still can't control your looks. I'm sorry. You didn't control the nearly 6,000 times your heart has beat over the course of this service alone. You didn't control that. Every heartbeat, every blink, every breath, every moment, every strength, every moment of sanity, every expression of ability. Are you getting it? All that you have All that I have, all that you are is a gift of grace from the God of the heavens that if you trace back everything you have and everything you are, if you trace it back all the way to its beginning, you will end up at God. And neglecting to acknowledge that is the same as refusing to acknowledge it. And if you neglect or refuse to acknowledge and embrace this truth, the writing is on the wall. If you live your life saying, I built that, you will be weighed on the balance and you will be found wanting. Now, isn't it interesting that the first thing that Belshazzar does when Daniel interprets this writing for him, the first thing he does is not to fall on his face and repent. What's the first thing he does? The first thing he does is is he goes back to the thing that he can control, is to bestow blessing and power and honor as an expression of his authority. As if the gifts and the position that he's giving Daniel would mean much anyway. Because, verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. Historical accounts tell us that that. Bab, that that the capital city of Babylon was considered to be impenetrable. Had a storehouse of food that would last them for over a year and it had a river running right through the city. So constant source of water. So how in the world did the Medes and, and the Persians overtake a city like this? Well, all they had to do was divert the water from the river somewhere else and then wait for the water level to go down. And as they partied, the water level went down and they marched through the waterways and overtook the city. You see, with Nebuchadnezzar, we saw God's ability to humble the proud and to exalt the humble. This morning, what we see in Belshazzar is that those who refuse to be humbled by grace will be humbled by destruction. So this is the test. This is the test. Will you acknowledge and embrace the truth that God is God and you are not? Will you be humbled and admit that apart from faith in Jesus Christ, that your life, no matter how great you are, how nice you are, how good you are, how accomplished you are, that your life without Jesus bears no weight on the scales of God's justice? And will you admit that the righteousness that you need to not be destroyed by God cannot be gained by your strength or earned by your ability, but instead has been accomplished by the work of Jesus whose only life when weighed in the balance was found worthy. And it's only by being united with his worthiness through faith that you can pass this test. That's what faith is. That's what faith is. Faith is asking Jesus to add your name to his test. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't give you the grade you deserve. He gives you the grade Jesus deserves. That's what faith is. And refusing to acknowledge that you need Jesus Christ as your Savior is the greatest expression of pride and is the surest path to destruction. You see, if you don't receive and submit to Christ as your Savior, then when your life is put on the scale, you too will be found wanting before a holy God. But here's the beautiful thing this morning. For Nebuchadnezzar, we saw last week, it took 12 months. took 12 months. For Belshazzar, his humbling took a few hours. You see, you don't know when your time is up. You don't know when your life will end. You don't know when your opportunity to repent Will have passed by. But the fact that you are here this morning, the fact that you can hear my voice right now means that it is still not too late. And so, are you not a Christian? Have you not humbled yourself and received God's salvation in Jesus Christ yet? It is not yet too late. Humble yourself, lay down your pride, and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord. Are you, are you a Christian, but you're living your life kind of however you want to live it? You go, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, I, do, I do what I want. Humble yourself by acknowledging that God's ways are better than your ways. And that to refuse to obey the Lord is to be proud before him. Humble yourself and walk in obedience. Now, are you a Christian who, as best you can, as faithfully as you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, desiring to walk in faithful obedience? Is that you this morning? What do we see from Belshazzar's story? Are you walking in faithfulness keep going keep going walk in faithful and humility faithfulness and humility regardless of the consequences because you know that your citizenship is not of this world you know that your hope is not in any kingdom of this earth but your hope is in a citizenship that is the kingdom of God let's pray together this morning Oh, Father, we pray that you would humble us. Oh, Lord, would it be no more severe than necessary, but no more subtle than needed? Would we recognize your grace to us even now that you continue to sustain our life and breath so that we can hear a message of warning Would we not be a proud people? Would we cling to Christ in humility? Would we submit to your authority in humility? Would we worship and bow before you in humility? You are the God of heaven and earth. And to you and you alone is honor and glory and praise. Would this be true of us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.